Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And today we bring you the story of the 13 original rules of basketball. When we started this podcast, we wanted to bring the history of the game of basketball as it developed into what we have today. Our very first episode was on the very first game ever played. We talked about Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of the game, and how he originally came up with the game of basketball. Now, I do not want to go into all the details again because I did that in episode one, and I suggest that you go back and listen to that episode to see how Dr. Naismith took ideas from several other games and then put it all together, along with a little bit of luck, to become the game that we all know and love basketball. With today's episode, I want to dig into the original 13 rules of the game that Dr. Naismith typed up with his own hands. In fact, the original copy of his 13 rules is on display at the University of Kansas, which is where Dr. Naismith would later coach and teach. He left his original copy to the university as a gift. Now, before we get into the actual rules, let me talk a bit about what is not in the rules. It did not say how many players were supposed to be on the court. The first game ever played had nine players on the court for each team. That is 18 total players on the court at the same time. The only reason he did that was because there were 18 students in his class and he just put everybody out there together. It would take about another year for the game to normalize at five players per side with everyone playing offense and defense. When he did have nine players per side, they organized themselves the way a soccer team does. They had three backs, three midfielders, and three forwards. In soccer, that would be described as a 3-3-3 formation. Since no one had ever played the game before and they had no other point of reference, the players just naturally organized themselves based on soccer. The backs would pass the ball up to the midfielders, who would then pass the ball up to the forwards for a shot attempt. So let us get into the actual rules. Some of these will take a little bit longer than others to unpack, but let's go ahead and get into it. Rule number one, the ball may be thrown in any direction with one or both hands. Now this is pretty simple. You can pass in any direction just like in soccer with players spread out in both front court and back court. There was no such thing as a backcourt violation yet, so you could pass the ball anywhere. Rule number two, the ball may be batted in any direction with one or both hands, but never with the fist. Now, this does sound like he just repeated rule number one, but this rule has more to do with the ball while it is in the air and being contested. If the player was not able to secure the ball, the player could tip the ball with one or both hands toward a teammate or to himself. You just could not make a fist and punch the ball because of the increased risk of injury. If you watch rugby, punching the ball with a closed fist is common and it does sometimes lead to injuries and this is exactly what Naismith was trying to avoid with this rule. Rule number three, 
A player cannot run with the ball. The player must throw it from the spot on which he catches it. Allowances to be made for a man who catches the ball while running if he tries to stop. This addresses the concept of traveling. Naismith did not want the game to turn into an indoor version of American football, where one person ran with the ball and the defenders attempted to tackle him. In basketball, players were not allowed to run. Basically, the player would catch the pass and then immediately look to make the next pass. Dribbling had not yet been invented. So once a player caught the pass, he had to remain stationary. Of course, as the rule says, allowances to be made for a player catching the ball on the run, assuming that the player makes an honest effort to stop as quickly as possible. In other words, a player could only move without the ball. Dribbling would be invented later, and I have an entire episode on the development of the dribble. That is episode 24 if you want to go back and check that out. Rule number four. The ball must be held in the hands. The arms or body may not be used for holding it. Now basically, Naismith did not want players to tuck the ball under their arm the way a running back would in American football. He also did not want players wrapping both arms around the ball the way some players do today when grabbing a rebound. A player could only use their hands. Of course today, nobody cares how the player holds the ball. You have seen some players tuck the ball like a running back when driving to the basket to protect the ball, only to bring it out in order to complete the layup. Now the next rule is a longer one, but here goes. Rule number five, no shouldering, holding, pushing, tripping, or striking in any way the person of an opponent shall be allowed. The first infringement of this rule by any player shall count as a foul. The second shall disqualify him until the next goal is made, or if there was evident intent to injure the person for the whole game. No substitute shall be allowed. Okay, so let us break this down. You basically cannot hit or trip an opponent or it results in a foul on the offending player. Now that's normal because that's still in the game today. Now keep in mind that this was in the days before free throws were invented. If the player received two fouls, he had to go and sit on the bench until the next basket was made by either team. And the team could not replace that player while he sat on the bench. Basically, in that very first game, one team would have to have eight players against nine until somebody scored. The reality was that in that very first game, there were so many fouls as everyone was just trying to figure it out that there were times when each team had four or five players on the bench at a time just waiting to come back in after the next basket. Also, if the referee determined that the foul had intent to injure, then the player could be basically red carded, like in soccer, and his team would have to finish the whole game down a player. Now that's not a big deal when it's 8 against 9, but it is a huge deal when it is 4 against 5. But it never got to that point. It did not take long for the free throw to be invented, which changed a regular basket to 2 points, with the free throw counting as 1 point. Rule number 6. A foul is striking the ball with the fist violation of rules 3, 4, and as such described in rule 5. Basically, any violation of rules 3, 4, or 5 are considered a foul, and it will count toward that two-foul limit requiring the player to sit on the bench until the next basket. This is fairly straightforward. Rule number 7. If either side makes three consecutive fouls, it shall be counted as a goal for the opponent. Consecutive meaning that the opponent in the meantime not making a foul. Again, this is pretty straightforward. If one team commits three fouls in a row without the other team committing a foul, then the opponent gets one point and play continues. Again, a lot of this goes away once free throws are invented. The team being fouled could potentially score a single point with a free throw on every foul that's committed against them. Now this took away the incentive to foul at all. Now this is a good place to take a break and we'll be right back with the rest of the 13 original rules.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Welcome back and let us continue with the original 13 rules that Dr. Naismith created when he invented the game of basketball. Rule number eight, a goal shall be made when the ball is thrown or batted from the ground into the basket and stays there, provided those defending the goal do not touch or disturb the goal. If the ball rests on the edges and the opponent moves the basket, it shall count as a goal. Now you might be thinking to yourself, did the rule just say, stay there? Well, yes. Remember that the original baskets were literally peach baskets. There was nowhere for the ball to go except to stay in the basket. Dr. Naismith was not allowed to cut out the bottoms of the basket because the janitor needed them back to actually harvest peaches. Back then, when a basket was scored, they had to grab a ladder and someone had to climb up and retrieve the ball from out of the basket so that they could continue playing. And I am so thankful for the modern net. Rule number nine, when a ball goes out of bounds, it shall be thrown into the field and played by the person first touching it. He has a right to hold it unmolested for five seconds. In case of a dispute, the umpire shall throw it straight into the field. The thrower in is allowed five seconds. If he holds it longer, it shall go to the opponent. If any side persists in delaying the game, the umpire shall call a foul on that side. All right, there are a couple of things going on here. If a player touched the ball last before it went out of bounds, that player could still keep possession of the ball if he races over and touches the ball first. Now you can imagine what that would do if that was still the rule today. The first person to touch the ball gets to throw it in. Basketball would turn into professional wrestling, and back in those early days of basketball, that is exactly what happened. Guys dove after the ball like a football fumble, and guys often got hurt as they scratched and clawed each other to get to the ball first. Of course today, if a player knocks the ball out of bounds, the other team automatically gets the ball. But not back then. The other thing that is happening with this rule is that it established the five second rule for inbounding the ball. That rule is still five seconds today at all levels of basketball. The third thing that is happening with this rule is that if the referee cannot determine which team touched the ball first, the referee would handle the inbounds himself. He would throw the ball onto the court in a way that was fair and gave each team an equal chance to grab it. Now rule number 10, the umpire shall be the judge of the men and shall note the fouls and notify the referee when three consecutive fouls have been made. He shall have power to disqualify men according to rule five. Okay, so this makes the umpire a glorified scorekeeper. Today, a scorekeeper tracks fouls and other statistics. In a typical NBA game, there is an army of scorekeepers tracking all kinds of things during a game. However, according to the original rules, the umpire not only tracked statistics, but also could kick a player out according to rule five if he thought that a given behavior warranted it. 
Rule number 11. The referee shall be the judge of the ball and shall decide when the ball is in play, in bounds, to which side it belongs, and shall keep the time. He shall decide when a goal has been made and keep account of the goals, with any other duties that are usually performed by a referee. Alright, so basically the referee needs to do the things that referees do today. Except back then, there was only a single referee, while today there are three, with one being considered the head ref. Rule number 12. The time shall be 15 minute halves, with 5 minutes rest between halves. Now this rule went out the window many, many years ago. The time of a game now depends at which level is being played. Elementary schools typically play with six minute quarters. Middle schools and high schools play with eight minute quarters. Colleges and universities play with either 20 minute halves or 10 minute quarters. All international basketball plays with 10 minute quarters. Only the NBA plays with a 12 minute quarter, the longest length of time anywhere in the world. And that brings us to our final rule. Rule number 13. The side making the most goals in that time shall be declared the winner. In case of a draw, the game may, by agreement of the captains, be continued until another goal is made. Now this rule is not as simple as it appears on the surface. Basically, if the game was tied at the end of regulation, the two captains could agree to play sudden death overtime where the first basket wins. But back in the 1890s, a typical basketball game might only have two or three baskets total for the entire game. People were still trying to figure out how to shoot the ball. This meant that sudden death overtime could go on for 20 minutes before someone finally scored a single basket. That is why the two captains had to agree to it. Sudden death overtime was not to be taken lightly, especially if one team needed to get out of town and catch a train back home or something. So if they could not agree on overtime, the game simply ended in a tie. So there you have it. Those are the 13 original rules of basketball. Dr. Naismith typed up those rules on a single piece of paper. Today, the NBA rulebook looks like an oversized dictionary, but it has to be in order to account for any possibility that could arise during a game. They have to define things so specifically like a legal contract, and it often still requires interpretation in the heat of the moment during a game. That is why the referees get into these little huddles during a controversial play. They are discussing every rule that could apply to the situation and trying their best to determine how to apply the various rules without violating any of them. In other words, they are trying to figure out which outcome satisfies all the rules pertaining to a specific situation. It is not an easy job. In a very real way, they are like a group of judges trying to figure out what the law says about a given situation. But hopefully you got a little bit of insight into the thinking process of Dr. Naismith and how he was trying to approach creating a brand new game that people would enjoy. And I'm sure that we can all thank Dr. Naismith for his invention. And now we have this beautiful game to watch and enjoy. Join us next time when we do a profile on Coach Bob Hurley and the amazing run that he had at St. Anthony High School in Jersey City, New Jersey. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.